Colossians chapter 2. Remember from uh, two weeks ago that Colossians uh, was a, a church in um, the Turkey area. Uh, same region as the seven churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus wrote to through John. Uh, they were, uh, Colossians was very close to Laodicea, the lukewarm church in Revelation. And uh, they were a church that Paul had never actually visited himself, uh, but rather uh, Epaphras, um, Epaphras was uh, probably the preacher out of Ephesus and Paul's school of ministry there that took the gospel and that uh, Philemon's son was probably the first pastor there in that church. And so uh, the church in Colossians is um, is kind of uh, behind ramparts, essentially. Uh, and on the other side of that battlefield are false teachers called Gnostics who are trying to make it over that uh, rampart and, uh, and get false doctrine into the church. And uh, it seems that the ramparts aren't very strong. Uh, they're not very high, if you will, kind of using a picture. And there's, there's little bits trickling in and getting over the wall and getting into the church. And so uh, Paul writes this epistle uh, in a bit of refutation against Gnosticism. And in doing that, he primarily focuses the Colossians' vision on Jesus. And just, man, if we can have a good handle on Jesus uh, through the scriptures, through the word of God, then when the false things come in, uh, we'll be able to... Uh, point them out right away and you know it's been said that uh, the people in the treasury department that are in charge of counterfeit bills they know uh, the you know in their training they're just trained to touch and feel and know the real bills so much and so well that when a counterfeit comes across uh, they just touch it and they know right away that it's fake and uh, I believe that's similar to Christianity you know as we know the word and we spend time in the word uh, you know, flags go up and discernment kicks in and we know when something isn't right. And so, uh, so Paul preaches Jesus. Again, it's, you know, uh, been called one of the most Christocentric books uh, in the Bible. almost went to the wrong book again. It was in Romans that time. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I started reading Galatians uh, instead of Colossians. And a uh, couple of different kind of titles for Colossians have been the preeminence and power of Christ or the uh, supremacy and sufficiency in Christ or the fullness and the freedom that believers have in Christ. And so uh, the goal tonight, maybe get through 23 verses. We'll see how we do with that. But uh, chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Paul had a, in the Greek, agon, agana or agonizing conflict here. And the language speaks of towards prayer. There was a form of a struggle or a fight or a foot race that Paul had for this church that he'd never even seen before. Just agony in prayer. There was conflict. No doubt 
spiritual warfare uh, through prayer. But Paul would remind the churches that he ministered to through the epistles that uh, there were times he endured affliction and like with he did he did with Second Corinthians a couple um, well gosh it might have been a year ago now uh, he wrote about the the affliction he endured as a prisoner was actually for them and Colossians is also written from a Roman prison cell and so this agonizing struggle or fight that he's going through it goes even deeper than the chains but it goes towards prayer specifically to this church that he's never even met face to face. Uh, he would write in 2 Corinthians 11 of all of the trials that he went through that really validate, you know, validate his apostleship. And one of those things that's probably the biggest, you know, greater than the stripes and greater than the imprisonment and greater than the sleepless nights and greater than the homelessness. Uh, he says, above all, my deep concern for all the churches. He has a deep concern for uh, these churches and, and the Colossians as well. He has a great conflict, an agonizing struggle for the Colossians and those who have not seen my face in the flesh. He goes through verses 4 through 7 here uh, and uh, we'll go ahead and read uh, up to verse 4 in a second. But he's going to encourage the Colossians to keep making spiritual progress. You know, as Christians, sometimes we can kind of plateau. And uh, I think it was Chuck Smith that said, you know, if you've ever read your Bible more than you do today, if you ever pray more than you do today, or have ever prayed more than you do today, if you've ever been in fellowship more than you are today, then you've backslidden. You've gone backwards rather than forwards. And so, you know, the Christian life, man, always advancing, as uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia speak of in a couple different of the books, uh, as the children are moving towards seeing Aslan, you know, they just keep chanting and crying out, higher up and further in, higher up and further in. And they go up a mountain and they go up a waterfall, you know, and they just keep higher up and further in, higher up and further in. And uh, in a sense, that's the chant going on through verse 7 here is just keep making spiritual progress higher up and further in in your walk with the Lord. In our Christian lives, let us never plateau. Let us never stand still. We either go forward or we gradually slip backward. Where are you at tonight with that? You know, are you moving forward? Or have you plateaued? All right, Vicky, yeah, that's awesome. Just like full on fist in the air. You're like forward, going forward. Paul's essentially saying, let's go on to maturity. And I'm so encouraged that God hasn't given up on me and that he's not letting me plateau. I mean, not, not saying that I don't plateau, but even just this last week, he's just been like stirring in me. Like, here's somewhere, here's something I want you to grow deeper and I want you to go deeper in this or higher up in this it can go both ways deeper or higher you know they're both good both good just don't stand still um and uh i think it was wearsby that said the christian who is not making spiritual progress is an open target for the enemy to attack and destroy so paul had this agonizing conflict there that that the christians and we're going to see that it's this prayer that they would grow and that they would move forward. And here's the prayer, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged 
being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So it seems that agonizing struggle is one of laboring in prayer for the Colossians and the Laodiceans, a church that was rebuked by Jesus in Revelation for being lukewarm. Apparently the heresy had spread there too even. And uh, it's similar prayer that Paul prays for other churches, but he wants these churches that their inner man would be encouraged or uh, um, brought uh, to a place of courage as he exhorts them, as he begs them, as he pleads with them, that in that their hearts would be knit together. So hearts encouraged and hearts united, hearts that are held together. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul's going to say that love brings that about, that it's love that is the bond of perfection. There's a psalm that, um, you know, it's quite possibly we'll be doing an Israel trip next year. We're talking with Rob about joining him, so might pray about if you were to join that. But as we're on the bus, uh, one of the songs that we always sing uh, in Hebrew, we're taught by Elon, our tour guide, is uh, Psalm 133.1. It's a song of ascents. And it's, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. Inamatov, inamatov, la 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 la. Come on, Vicky, I think you'd put the fist bump. No, uh, so uh, some sort of Hebrew there. You'll get a ha in there um, as well. <coughs> it's their culture. Um, but that's the heart of the Lord is that there'd be unity. And, and if you think to pray for our church, Always pray for unity in our church. Not unity in in any sort of lies, but unity in the truth, unity in Jesus. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That was a prayer of Jesus when he prayed to the Father and he said, I pray that they would all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they would be one in us. We see that was part of the early church in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The multitude who believed were of one heart, one soul. It was a prayer for unity. And attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. That's quite the prayer right there. Attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. What he's praying here is that they would have the wealth of complete certainty and insight and intelligence into the Word of God. This complete assurance of understanding that as we come to the Word and we rightly divide it and we uh, observe and we interpret according to the rules of literature as we see the context of the scriptures and the meta-narrative or the common thread through scripture, the story of God's self in the scriptures, we can have complete certainty as to who Jesus is and what he's calling us to and what his great plan is and what the mystery is that's been revealed that the Gentiles would become partakers of grace We can have a wealth of complete certainty, a wealth of insight, a wealth of intelligence as to who he is. He's given us the word to know that. And we can have certainty. 
And just, you know, speaking with someone recently who's like, man, just I sometimes I don't know how do we know what's right and what's true. Even talking to my kids, you know, you get little Laney and she just asks a good question. How do we know we're right? It's like, man, we can go back to the word and there is so much incredible evidence from the scriptures and from prophecy. And then you can look at the world and archaeology and there's so many things that point to this being true. But all throughout the scripture, we see that we can have that assurance. Hebrews 6.11 says, And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope till the end. We can live that life of not doubting and not worrying, but one of full assurance and hope until the end. Hebrews 10, again, and it's interesting that Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, these two passages are both passages that are very scary regarding eternal security. And yet then you have these little hopeful gems in the midst of them that say, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You know, in a sense, uh, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, they're like warning signs next to a cliff, just saying, just don't even go over there. Just, that'll keep you over here, just don't even go there. And so because you just are warned not to go there, you can draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, saying, hey, somewhere over there's a cliff with some signs in front of it, just don't go over there. Let's stay over here, and it's just, there's freedom. We can play football over here, you know? We can race cars. We can, it's safe over here. We can have a true heart with full assurance of faith. Look at 2 Peter 1.5 with me. I'm not sure. There we go. Cool. I haven't been following if the verses have been coming up. So It says, uh, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is just one of those things, just like, hey, always advancing, always moving forward. And it's just a good thing that Peter's telling us, like, are these things lacking in your life? Then just press into the Lord and ask the Lord to be adding these things to you and, and showing you how to discipline yourself to have these things in your life. And he says, if these things are yours and abound, uh, rather, I'm sorry, we read that, verse 9, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we've got this, you know, Colossians phrase of attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. And we've got other epistles and other authors, whether it's the author of Hebrews or the author of Peter, that's just saying, man, let's draw near. Draw near to the Lord. Let him work character development in you. Let him work virtue in you. Let him work conviction in you. Let him work 
love in you and be diligent in that in that calling on your life in that election of your life to be a Christian these are marks of a Christian if you're lacking in those things there's rebuke for you and correction through the word so that you'll come back to pursuing Christ and the fruits of righteousness and then also with that there's this assurance there's a sure election there's never stumbling there's assurance as 1 John 3:18 and 19 my little children let us not love in word or in tongue but in deed and in truth and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him so you know you're a christian if you're loving your brother that's not the only thing but it's a good mark that if you're not loving your brothers something's wrong it's a good uh it's a good health check for you love indeed love in truth and that brings assurance of our hearts before him according to john he prays that they would have knowledge of the mystery of god both of the father and of christ the mystery of God. It's actually Christ who is the true mystery of God who reveals God to man. John 1.18 says that uh, the only begotten Son who's the bosom of the Father, in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And Hebrews tells us in chapter 1 verse 1 that in various times, in various ways, God spoke in time past to the Father by the prophets. And then, it's just this really cool thing, that in these last days, he's spoken to us, and it, it's actually literally translated, in son. So it used to be prophets speaking. Nowadays, we had Jesus talk directly to us. We've got letters in red, y'all. By him, he's appointed heir of all things. So we've got Jesus who has brought this mystery we we can understand what god is up to and in him in jesus verse three of our text if you want to go back down there i know sometimes we're hopping hopscotching so just come back to our text and kind of reset colossians 2 3 in whom or in jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge so whenever there's just these you know crazy theories or or radical claims, or secret hidden wisdom. You can just kind of come back and step back and look at what we do know about Jesus. Okay, and then, and then line those things up to, here we have what the scriptures say about Jesus, and then you line these things up to what they say, and it's either a match or it's not a match. But it's in Jesus that there's these treasures hidden of wisdom and knowledge. And if it's not linked to Jesus, then it's the opposite of wisdom and knowledge. It's foolishness and lies. But how cool, there's this treasury or this storeroom of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is the word Sophia. And it speaks of knowledge of first principles. And knowledge is the power to grasp the truth when we see it and hear it. It's in Jesus that there's the 
riches of the knowledge of first principles. It's in Jesus that there's the riches of the power to grasp the truth when we see it and hear it. I just am thinking right now of the disciples and how Jesus would talk to them and they just kind of like just not get it, you know? Until Jesus died, rose from the dead, he's speaking to them and it then he says that he op- this is Luke 24, he opened up their eyes to be able to comprehend the scriptures. And are you one that you read the Bible and you're just like, what? Or, oh man, I just, oh, this is just, I mean, I just dread going to the word in the morning or in the, you know. And I would just encourage you, ask the Lord, like in Luke 24, open my eyes and my mind that I could comprehend the scriptures. And just, maybe you just even pray, it's in you that's hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and I'm not getting it. I need just that the treasure. I need like that direct deposit, you know, from your rich bank account of wisdom and knowledge. Just direct deposit. Just download it right here, Lord. I need it. In Jesus is found the riches of wisdom and knowledge. It's not found in Mary Baker Eddy's key to the scripture. It's not found in the golden tablets of Joseph Smith. It's not found in the pearl of great price or the watchtower magazine. It's not found in modern day Gnostics. It's not found in Scientology where somebody tells you, I found the key to deep, true spirituality. Come to my house and, uh, and I'll show you a DVD. And then you can pay a ton of money and I'll show you the next DVD and then you'll get that source of next true spiritual wisdom and this and that and the other until you've given up a ton of money Uh, really the rich man's religion. You don't need it. You don't need it. In Jesus is found the riches of wisdom and knowledge. In 1 Corinthians, where Paul is dealing with people who prided themselves in philosophy and knowledge, Paul breaks it down to just, you can be the simple man, and that's okay. He says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We had a conversation, just a good conversation in our home group the other night and just grieving, just people who've left the church and how we miss them and and just, you know, oh, but just then the Lord always reminds me, but be thankful for who's here. Like, you've got to not focus on the name. You've got to focus on who God... And Lindsay and I were laying in bed that night. And I just started cracking up, laughing. And I go, you know, really the truth is, we should expect people to leave judging from who you've got behind the pulpit. It's a miracle that anybody stays here. I mean, I just started laughing because I'm hearing things that I've said. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm annoyed by myself. You know? And, you know, we just, we had a good laugh, you know. I think, I think we really got to change our mindset instead of like, oh man, just, oh, how could they leave? No, how could anyone stay here? I mean, that's the question. Some of you are really actually taking that to thought right now. And all I can say is, man, 1 Corinthians 1, you guys, 
Like the Lord uses the foolish things of the world, and He's right here. He's right here. I'm just telling you. And and He's able to get some glory because I got nothing to boast in in and of myself. And the more that I cling to Jesus and spend time in that download of His riches of wisdom and knowledge, that's where it's found. It's Matthew twelve forty two. Jesus makes a reference to Solomon, who was the wisest man that ever lived. You might remember the story of the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So he's referencing the queen of Sheba, going and hearing all of the riddles of Solomon and seeing his vast kingdom and checking out his fortune. And, and, uh, and, and then he says, but indeed... A greater than Solomon is here. So Solomon was just a type of the wise one who was to come. Really the son of Solomon, Jesus. He is that source of knowledge. Norman Geisler said, Knowledge is the apprehension of truth. Wisdom is its application to life. Knowledge is prudent judgment. And wisdom is prudent action. Both are found in Christ. Both of those things are found in Christ. And so if you're not spending time at the feet of Jesus, you're not going to have that, the depth of wisdom that God would have for you and the depth of knowledge, the apprehension of truth and its application to life. Those things are found in Jesus. And so now we have this need for progress that Paul gets into. It's time to move forward then. Because verse 4 says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness or firmness of your faith in Christ. So he says, I'm going to tell you something because I'm warning you. People are going to try to deceive you with persuasive words. They will delude and dilute you with convincing words, convincing arguments, fine, sound arguments. But those arguments exalt themselves against the word of God. They will deceive you with persuasive words. There's a warning here to examine all teaching for its truthfulness. People tell me, Rory, you're passionate, or you're hilarious, you know, or you're motivating. None of that matters if I'm not truthful. If I'm not a champion of truth, preaching the word of God in truth, then, guys, toss me to the curb. Kick me out of here. Lock the door and wave at me through the window and just tell me go over there. Because passion or entertainment or humor, none of that matters. It doesn't even matter if there's truth with it. Truth is what matters. Truthfulness of content is much more important than the attractiveness of its packaging. There are a lot of attractive, handsome, hilarious, charismatic, 
men out there. But they're teaching false doctrine and they're leading thousands, if not millions, to hell with them daily. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. This persuasive speech or pithenologia is found only in the New Testament and it uses plausible but false arguments. And so as you're witnessing to your friend at work or the person that knocks on your door, they may speak things that seem very plausible, but they're false. Remember this, truth and persuasion do not always correlate. Truth and persuasion do not always jive. Error can persuade. Truth can be compelling at times. The Greek word here describes the persuasive arguments of a lawyer. Now, I haven't spent much time in court. spent a little bit of time, but not much where I get to see lawyers cross-examining. But I have seen people, you know, be drilled on plenty of 2020 or Dateline shows with the hidden camera where the lawyer is speaking and he just completely trips up somebody who maybe has a lower intelligence level than the, than the lawyer or the judge, and they are tripped up to a point to where they finally end up agreeing with the lawyer. The argument was plausible, but it was false. There's this nature of the progress. There's some vivid pictures used here by Paul to illustrate the nature of the spiritual progress. It says that, Paul had rejoiced to see the Colossians' good order. And so the first picture that is shown here that shows a nature of progress is an army in verse 5. The words order and steadfastness are military terms describing an army that is solidly united against the enemy. It speaks of the arrangement of army units in ranks with each soldier in his proper place. Not everybody's a five-star general, but the general can never fight the battle alone. That's the order in the church. But there's also steadfastness as those soldiers are in battle formation. They've got a solid front to the enemy. I'm reading a uh, Civil War book right now on, on uh, Ulysses S. Grant and uh, Forrest from the Confederate side. And I'm just reading about you know, these battle tactics and ironclad battleships and forts with cannons and cavalry units. And that got me looking into what's a cavalry unit like? And, you know, and you just see these horses that are just prepared for battle and they are war horses and they've got these solid fronts and they would just run at the enemy, just, you know, flank to flank and just taking out the enemy because there was a steadfastness, not only in rank, but in their proper Place. They had a solid front to the enemy. And Christians can make the same type of progress through their discipline, through their obedience, just as soldiers can on the battlefield. So there's soldier illustration. There's verse 6, a pilgrim illustration. Pilgrim. Okay. Thank you. Pilgrim actually speaks of believers. Jenny, you don't got to get up because that was a really bad John Wayne interpretation. 
It speaks of believers learning how to walk. Got some young babies here, you know, just that. Learning how to walk. As you therefore have received Christ, the Lord Jesus, so walk in him. Paul hadn't created this truth, but Galatians tells us he had received it from Jesus personally, and now he passes it on to the Colossians, and they can walk steadfastly in it. This is really the testimony of all Christians receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. He is Christ and he is Curios. He is Lord and he is Savior. We receive him as Jesus Christ the Lord and now we can walk in that. We started with Christ and we must continue with Christ, Paul is writing here. We started in faith and we must continue with faith. The only way to make spiritual progress here. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And now the picture is a tree. Rooted here is an agricultural word. It means in the tense here, once and for all having been rooted. Christians are not tumbleweeds who have no roots. As Ephesians 4 says, either they're tossed around like a wind, like a storm at the smallest hint of wind. These tumbleweeds are, you know, for some reason, our house, where how it's positioned on yellow pine, we get all the tumbleweeds coming into our backyard. They, they go right by the side of my driveway and go right by my, uh, you know, deck and right into my backyard. And uh, I don't know. I guess I need to remember that, that um, I need to be rooted and grounded. Um, but rather we're to be uh, solidly planted and rooted. Rooted and built up or strengthened firmly. Then we also have the word here, um, established, which speaks of a building. So we've got uh, soldiers, we've got pilgrims, we've got trees, we've got Buildings. This built up is an architectural term. In the present tense, it's that we are being built up. So even tonight, we're here, we're in the word of God. We're just here surrendered to the spirit of God. He's using the word to conform us into his image. He is pressing the word into our lives. He is building us up. He's nourishing us uh, with the precious milk of the word. And we are being built up, present tense. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, speaks of continuing in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Those who are rooted and built up are like the wise man in Matthew chapter 7 who built his house upon the rock. And the rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And, uh house on the rock stood firm. We need to get a choir going here. You know how often I use that in biblical counseling? Not the song. <laughs> haven't, had a, haven't had a whole lot of returns. Uh, but you know, it's just like, hey, we can do what the word of God says, and we're building our house upon the rock, and then when the storms of life come, it'll be standing firm. Or we can do how I want to do it. Build it on the sand, Storms of life and trials of life come, it's going to fall down. 
It's a foolish man. A foolish man builds his house upon the sand. We are buildings being built up. First Peter 2 tells us that. Established in the faith. Confirmed and increased in inner strength in what can be believed, in what can be trusted. And so we've got the soldier. We've got the pilgrim. The one who's learning how to walk. We've got the tree who's rooted and grounded. We've got the building as we're pressing on towards maturity. We are being built up. And then we have a school in the latter part of verse 7. This established in the faith. You know, it's been said that Satan has a difficult time deceiving the Bible-taught believer. Difficult time deceiving the Bible-taught believer. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, to be steadfast and immovable. Be Bible-taught, be immovable. He is able, Jude tells us, to keep you from stumbling. And to present you faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I was listening to Alistair Begg today. He said that he had a poster in his office of a man running down a narrow road through fields, up a mountain, down a mountain, and up a really steep mountain. It said the race is not always to the swift, but to those who keep on running. He said, the message of the word isn't supposed to charge us up for a drag race just to get us through Tuesday, but to work endurance in us so we would be established, steadfastly holding to the end. I can't remember who I was talking to the other day, but you know, just more and more just realizing, man, this Christian life is not a drag race and it's not a sprint. You know, you guys got to get on Kimmy's Facebook page and you got to watch her run. Was it high school? That was in college? Oh my goodness, like, you've probably seen it. She's famous. She was on Dateline. Uh, but you know, man, just, I, at first I'm watching it, she's like, she's going so fast, this has got to be like a sprint. You know, she's probably running to the edge of the track or whatever, you know. And then she does a lap. And then she does another lap, right? Two laps? Four laps? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the you got a time your explosion of energy, right, to make it to the end. And, you know, you learn that in the Olympics and such, and watching Kimmy there run it. But, um, you know, so many Christians, though, they live the Christian life as if it's a sprint, and poof, they're out of steam, uh, you know, six months into their walk, or a year, or two years, or five years in. And, you know, it's great to have poofs of energy. That's wonderful. But, but they're forgetting, like, man, you know, Whoever I was talking to, I don't know if it was you, Aaron, but you know, I'm 35, and if the Lord tarries, you know, and I don't let myself go or something, I don't know, you know, I might live till I'm 72 or 80 or 90, I don't know, but I got a long ways left. If the Lord, you know, this is an endurance race still, and there are plenty of things for the enemy to throw targets on my back and be trying to take me down that. The statistics are that I'm, I got another year left, guys. <laughs> oh, Lord, may it not be so. This is, a, this is an endurance walk with the Lord where we are soldiers in order and in rank. We are 
pilgrims who are walking in Christ as we've received Christ. We are trees rooted and grounded in buildings established. And we are in the school of being taught the word of God. Speaking of schools, quick little plug for the school of ministry starting up this Sunday, 7.30 to 9. Be here or be square. All right. A.M., yes. Yeah, kind of a Sunday school thing. You know what? Uh, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Yeah, you can just go ahead and take them out. <laughs> the next thing that Paul tags on here is that Gnosticism is wrong, verses 8 through 10, but deity is in Christ. And so Paul finally begins to specifically condemn the Gnostic heresy. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So beware, be able to see and watch out. Looking out for false teachers. This is something that Jesus, Peter, Paul, the author of Hebrews, they speak in regularly. He says, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. I mean, guys, this is classic Looney Tunes here. Okay? Sheep's clothing. They're soft. They're cuddly. You give them an inch, they take a mile. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Peter tells us, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, as we've been talking about, as you are led away with the error of the wicked. Author of Hebrews says in 13.9, don't be carried away with various and strange doctrine. Just when I thought we were done with the whole little shack season in life, it comes out again uh, on video. And there's just things about the shack, about the deity of Jesus, the gender of Jesus, the gender of God, things where we've taken the word and we've watered it down just a bit. And so we need to beware, we need to be able to see and watch out. As Hebrews 13.9 said, that we're not carried away with various and strange doctrines. It goes on to say, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Philosophy seems like wisdom. There's a deceit that's even empty in and of itself. It takes captive of you. It controls you through human wisdom, empty foolishness, and worthless deception. It's hollow. It's deceptive philosophy. These False teachers like to use intimidation tactics. You know, there's books written on a good business model is intimidating business. Scaring people to get them to buy your product. And Galatians tells us, don't yield to those guys for even an hour. Don't yield the truth of the scripture because of intimidation tactics. Because of philosophy because of arguments that seem to have some sort of substance but are in contrary to the word of God. Romans tells us that these individuals are futile in their thoughts even though they claim to be wise and they have foolish hearts that are darkened. Go to 1 Corinthians 1.19 with me. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And so Paul's talking about the Greeks and the philosophers 
and those that love wisdom of the world. He says, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to bring it to nothing. Where's the wise? Where are the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? These guys that are so smart, where are they? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Since the wisdom of the world, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God. Listen to this. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So there's worldly wisdom. There's worldly knowledge. There's worldly ways. If you were to ask the world, who should go to heaven? What's the world going to tell you? The good people, the people that do good should go to heaven. Who should go to hell? Well, those, you know, the, the murders and the rapists. Those are the two groups that should just automatic straight ticket to hell. Okay. And how should you be able to go to heaven? Well, just good works, just really trying hard at the end of your life. You just hope that your good works outweigh your bad works. And it says here that it pleased God then through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. This is foolishness. You're telling me I'm supposed to believe on a Galilean carpenter from Nazareth, you know, from that area, because I'm not good enough? That's foolishness. And it pleased the Lord to use such a message. He goes on to tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. He tells Timothy that profane and idle babblings and contradictions, they are what are falsely called knowledge. And so guys, as we are a church in 2017, you know, 90% of us have Facebook and there's new debates and there's new fancy this and there's new this argument and there's just something new every week to tickle our ears and to cause some kind of, and we just need to come back to holding on to Jesus. What we know of Jesus, what's been revealed to us of Jesus through the word. As soldiers in ranks, as pilgrims who are walking from what we've received from Jesus Christ, as trees that are rooted and grounded, buildings that are established, people who are learning in the school of the scripture. Because Paul prophesies to Timothy that evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. But who do we know who are the evil and who are the imposters? We compare them to the scripture of God's word. These guys bring doctrine and teaching with them who are according to the tradition of men. Man's tradition, and that tradition can even be five-year-old traditions. Well, this is how our society views this now. And this is how, um, you know, this is what real love is now. You know, and this is what gender is now or however you identify now or this or that. And these things, it's... It's as old as time. It's a tale as old as time. These are elementary principles of the world. The ESV translates it, elemental spirits of the world, which shows it goes deeper than just man's thoughts. There's something spiritual going on here. The NIV says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy 
that depends on human tradition. Human tradition. It's about human tradition that could go back to the days of, of Abraham or it could go back to the days of Roe v. Wade or it could go back to the days of President Obama's presidency. But they're humanistic spirits of humanism and they are not according to Christ. And we're going to close down here just looking at how this dilute can happen in uh, Matthew 15 2 uh, Jesus and his disciples are confronted by the Pharisees why do your disciples transgress in the tradition of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread he answered and said to them why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition and so they've taken tradition and they've elevated it above the word of God even reading about a denomination you know uh, that is prevalent in our society that uh, they say in their statement of faith you know our authority is in equal terms um, the the traditions and the songbooks and the scriptures and um, come to school of ministry and learn about where we got the Bible and where we got the canon and, uh, and you'll see why there's a problem there in that. But uh, one thing is, you know, when you lift up the, the words of the Pope, for instance, uh, to be higher than the Bible, and then you lift up the magisterium or the traditions to be higher than the Bible, then you have the God-breathed holy men of God wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit stuff, and, you know, just toss it out, whatever, because whatever this guy says this day, and, and it can change and it can flex. But the word of God is the same yesterday, it's the same today, it's the same forever. And Jesus calls these guys out for transgressing the commandments of God for tradition. And then uh, later on, we don't have the time to read the whole problem there, but you get the point when you just read verse 6 of Matthew 15. You have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. And then he says in Mark chapter 7, same problem there. Jesus just words it a couple uh, a different way. That uh, he, they wanted them to wash their hands in a special way as they were holding the tradition of the elders. And then you jump down to verse 5. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? What are they worried about right now? They're worried about tradition. They're fiddler on the roof in it. Tradition, tradition. You know. Why aren't you washing your hands in this way? And Jesus just lays it out so well. He answers in verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me. Okay, so just real quick, when you're going to take the commandments or the tradition of men and elevate it above the word of God, then your worship turns to vanity it turns to lip service rather than heart service and he goes on to say they teach as doctrines the commandment of men laying aside the commandment of God holding the tradition of men the washing of pitchers cups many other things he said to them all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition later on he says in verse 13 making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you've handed down. 
And so as we continue on next week, looking at Colossians chapter 2, we're going to see that the Gnostics, who are a new agey, um, cultic, uh, legalistic, ascetic cult, false teachers, denying the deity of Jesus, thereby denying the effective, atoning, sufficient work of Jesus, uh, we see that they are going to, um, you know, their, their goal or their aim is to push down the sufficiency of Jesus so that, yeah, you need him, but not as much as you think. What you really need to do is, um, rather by demeaning his uh, superiority, I should say, therefore they have attacked his sufficiency, saying, so now you need to go back out there and you need to start laboring in a few different ways, in legalistic ways, uh, through circumcision, through keeping certain days, uh, keeping certain feasts, and through asceticism, um, behaving, looking uh, certain ways, um, basically afflicting the flesh so that you can truly be righteous. And so, um, as we just close there, our goal in all of this, uh, and really, we'd be better to at least close with verse 9, where it says, but in him, or for in him, Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he just, you know, uh, he just essentially drops a bomb on the Gnostic heresy of Jesus' deity. This fullness, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, is a powerful description. It's been called and it links to chapter 1, verse 9. It's been called the most powerful description of Christ's deity in the New Testament. The fullness of the Godhead bodily in Jesus. It's a technical term in theology showing the totality of divine power and attributes are Jesus. And so that's, that's a good place to end it in all of this uh, there are false teachers coming in and they're trying to dissuade us and get us away from the word of God and get us to hold to tradition because Jesus isn't enough. Paul just wants us to say, oh, he is enough. He's preeminent. He's superior. He is full. In him, he's God. And what he did on the cross is perfectly sufficient to atone for your sins and not only to atone for your sins, but to sanctify you and to carry you through this life to the end in perfection. So we want to close on that note of encouragement. Let's, why don't we go ahead and set our things aside and stand.